if we want to make democracy possible, what are the constraints that we have to negotiate for that utopia to be pragmatic? And I think one of those is going to be much, much, much intensified automation of many discrete components of, of human work. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks again for joining us here at the Interesting Times podcast. It's great to be back here, and we are up now with our second full-length episode. This one is such an interesting and fascinating conversation. I'm not going to spend too much time here previewing it. Uh, I will just basically say that um, myself included, and I think many people tend to focus and, and put our attention to um, to use a kind of metaphor from the, the medical industry, um, diagnoses. Um, many of us feel there is, there is something vastly wrong um, with society, um, be it the United States or Europe or places in Asia, Africa, what have you, and that we focus a lot on diagnosing what this problem is locally, nationally, globally, and, and so forth. And I, I do think that is important because you do have to have an idea of what the problem is before moving towards any sort of substantive plan of action. All a way to say that I was very fortunate to be put in touch with just a really, and, and this is an overused word, but genuinely profound and very thoughtful scholar um, who happens to also be quite humorous and, and easygoing. Um, that would be the one and only Ira Allen. And we had a kind of initial discussion just to, to catch up with each other a few weeks back and really had a great time talking and shared a lot of interest. But I think, wouldn't say differences, but perhaps different emphasis um, or areas of emphasis that um, make some for some dynamism, right? We're not just sitting there agreeing or saying um, everyone's right um, about this and that, but perhaps coming at it from a little bit of a different perspective. And one thing I really... Um, enjoyed about this conversation and about talking to um, Professor Allen more generally is that he's really kind of shaken up my my thinking in, in a good way and, and made me start putting more attention to um, okay but you know diagnoses are important but what what is a world if, if we're looking at significant breakdowns in terms of social political ecological breakdown what have you um, what comes next Right? What are we talking about? What, how are things going to change? And what kinds of possibilities are we talking about with, with change in, in, in the future? And um, I think Ira does just such a good job of directing our attention to those important questions. And in, in many ways, that is how this discussion um, unfolds, is centered around um, this idea of, of what we're going to learn. Um, Ira likes to call hard constraints um, and how understanding what is possible and, and what we can do to come out of this era of crisis that we're pretty clearly living amidst right now, which is an interesting place to be with a system that is perhaps, dare I say, better, more durable, more sustainable. And um, if you're interested in those kinds of things, I can't think of a much better person you would like to hear um, discuss them and, and talk about them than um, Ira Allen. 
So before we turn over to the conversation, I just want to offer a brief introduction to Professor Allen. Um, he is a, an associate professor of rhetoric, writing, and digital media studies in the Department of English and Politics and International Affairs at Northern Arizona University. Um, his scholarship and translations appear in journals such as The Advances in History of Rhetoric, Substance, Modern Language Notes, College Composition and Communication, Theory and Event, and Political Research Quarterly. Um, he also has a book out with University of Pittsburgh Press that came out in 2018, and the book's title is The Ethical Fantasy of Rhetorical Theory, which I am already have a copy ordered and I'm excited to read. He is also currently working on a new book manuscript that focuses on how constitutions are written and practices of witnessing in an era of staggered collapse, right? And so that's, I think, one thing that um, how, as I mentioned, Ira kind of sharpens up our discussion and says, okay, um, we are in this process of staggered collapse of, of a certain prevailing social order that has emerged perhaps over centuries and really solidified maybe over the last several decades. Um, but if we are living amidst that collapse, we not only need to be focusing on diagnosing the causes of that collapse, as I tend to often um, home in on, uh, but also what sorts of processes, ideas, and constitutions are going to be needed to regenerate and to produce, um, again, a more stable and sustainable order to emerge from the wake of um, this slowly breaking down system we're living amid right now. So I think this is, you know, as important of a topic as there is. Um, I'm so honored and excited to have uh, Ira join us, and I'm sure you'll just get a lot from the discussion to come, especially from what he has to say. Before we turn it over, one last thing. Um, please, as always, like, rate, um, subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends about it. Uh, I really enjoy doing this, and I'm hoping this um, provides some interesting insights, and I've really been working hard to bring interesting guests like Professor Allen on. All I would ask, if you do like the show, if you do like the conversations we're having and the articles we're putting on the interesting times, um, please, you know, word of mouth is basically the best um, form of, of advertising we have. So please share with your friends, tell your friends about it, um, colleagues, and so forth. Uh, I would greatly appreciate it. Okay, well, thanks again so much for tuning in, and let's get to the conversation. Okay, Ira Allen, thanks so much for joining us here at the Interesting Times podcast. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, Kevin. Really glad to be here. Um, one of the things that you had mentioned to me is kind of a, a bedrock of your research and writing and, and kind of thinking more broadly um, about uh, the topics you, you work with is this notion of constraints or as you call them, hard constraints. And um, that that um, needs to be, you know, and I found it already interesting that it needs to be an initial perspective added to any discussion on problems the world is facing, solutions to the, you know those problems and so forth. Because in, in general, I think it's a common form to think about those at the end. 
Yeah, right, right, right. Like they're interrupting. You had this great idea, and then the constraints interrupted. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So let's start. Let's start. And so we're going to start with this idea of constraints, um, and then talk about some some issues in in the modern world of, of you know amongst the many, and then maybe we'll circle back to that um, as we kind of wrap things up. So what, why don't we start? What what do you mean by hard constraints? Okay, great. Thanks. Um, let me let me. This is maybe unreasonable, but I'm going to do it anyways. So here's let, – let me say what I mean by contrast. Uh, um, take roles, right? Take a theory of justice, central work of modern liberalism, blah, 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 blah. This is an effort to think goodness in a way that's like – it's the exact opposite of any kind of constraints-based thinking. It's not It's not even the like fake historical constraints of Rousseau or Hobbes. It's like, let's get to the essence of the thing by getting rid of history. What's the essence of the thing? It's a, it's a beautiful vision, totally unworkable, doesn't work, garbage, but it's a beautiful vision. Um, well, so just to just to jump in for uh, um, listeners who um, have, may have varying uh, familiarity with Rawls, and we, we don't need to, you know, but the very simple and I think kind of the structure of Rawls is, is is getting at is this idea of the original position and trying to imagine a just society in, in terms of how a person who knows nothing about themselves or their position, their gender, how, you know, what conditions they'll be born into. The thought experiment is like, how would that person construct a society and how would they view fairness and justice roughly and and oh, so yeah, that's a, that's you're saying that that gloss by the way anybody who's listening who hasn't read rolls honestly you just got like the best 30 second gloss you're going to get. <laughs> i'm i'm blushing here in in, in uh, japan i promise you um but anyways that so that is and that you're saying like in some ways he's trying to transcend constraint yeah the, the, the whole the whole bit, exactly it's 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 a it's a it's a certain kind of philosophical position. It's it's not unique to Rawls uh, by any stretch, uh, but it's this notion that if you can get a thing in itself, justice in this case, um, the way that you get at it is that you get rid of all of the things that interfere with its being in itself, and and so a position like that in Rawls ends up you know, be having a lot of detractors, obviously, over time, and also producing some actually not idiotic, genuinely compelling visions of justice. And, and then ends up later on over time, having sort of history added back in, I think, probably the the most famous Rawlsian in some ways, it might be Martha Nussbaum. Uh, and and mm. a book called Frontiers of Justice. Right? Well, and then he got into all this kind of it was like this weird shit about like right ordered people or well, there was some weird, I remember cause I did some Rawls in grad school and it was like some shit like well organized. I was like, this does, I was like, Hey, I'm not trying to be judgy here, but that just seems kind of like a little <laughs> not good. Not you know, in my John. <laughs> right. What well, was it like? Well, or well, was it the, what there was some term he used that I thought was just really just stuck. Out. It was, what, what was it like? What right ordered people or something? Yeah. Or yeah. Well, I mean, so, so, and, and, and there's, you know, there's a lot. Rawls has many, many critics, uh, um, for good reason, and 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 especially, uh, um, especially along um, racial and gender lines. So, so Mills, Charles Mills, and Carol Patman, Patman, uh, 
have have a book that is kind of co-authored. It's really an interesting book um, where they're exploring their uh, uh, compatible, but but actually somewhat competing uh, uh, objections to this way of thinking about justice and history and so on and so forth. But I just I just wanted to bring it up to say like so there's there's a an intuitively pretty compelling way of thinking about goodness broadly. So fine, Rawls is writing about justice, but it's a general kind of principle, right? What you think? Well, what's the thing in itself in its goodness? What's the good world in itself? How should it be if you just get to the essence of it? And what I'm about is is really not that. Um, but I'm also not interested in uh, uh, what the political scientist Albert Hirschman uh, called the, the rhetoric of reaction, where you're like, oh, but see, there's all these constraints. You can't do the good things because of the constraints. So I, I, I'm what I call a pragmatic utopian. That means nice. I'm interested in best possible worlds, but I'm interested in best possible existing worlds. And to do that, you've got to start by saying, what are the features of the present world that might be expected to persist in any future contiguous with the present? Now, that's not universal. That's not you know, a historically transcendental. What are the the what are the transcendental conditions of human social organization? I'm just a I'm a mere rhetorician. I don't know anything about all that. What I do know is, at any given moment, there's some features of that moment that are hard constraints on the future. There are features of that moment that you can reasonably expect to persist in futures that are contiguous with, next to, adjacent to this moment. And the thing about it, so, so, so with that, two, two seconds on it. The thing, the thing with that is just to say that doesn't mean that the futures that are contiguous with this moment are the only futures, right? There are sort of radical breaks of a sort in history. There are revolutionary moments after which everything is different. If you're going to say in you know 1913. In, in Russia, what are the futures contiguous with this moment? You're you're probably not going to come up with uh, dispossessing the kulaks, and yet the kulaks were dispossessed. Um, so so there's you, there are breaks. There are there are you know critical junctures after which things are might be radically different. But mostly, most of the time, even when things are radically different, there are features of the present that persist in most expectable futures. Right. And that's so, what I'm interested in. No, and yeah, and, and to, to follow up on that, well, first of all, I love the term pragmatic utopian. Um, I I've commonly refer to myself as an optimistic nihilist. So, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm very much a fan of the... All um, about that chiasmus. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so, but but more seriously, like, I guess I, on, on one level, I think the the issue of constraints, and I think you you make an important observation that it's often um, introduced later, and 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 it kind of ends up gumming up the works of of some magisterial or, or apparently magisterial yeah. formulation like Rawls or something. And it's like, well, hold on, well now now you have a, a, actual human beings here and history and and the forces of history and and social forms that are existing in the world. So I guess for me, and this is something I I, I think is 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 
uh, one of the big, you know, social or political questions. Um, if we, if you do, I do kind of historical political economy or, you know, in, in changing, you know, big scale social changes and, and so forth is how do we sort out what I call is kind of, for lack of a better term, like contrived constraints. And when I say contrived, it doesn't mean that they're like pithy or simple. I mean, a lot of, you know, um, slavery in, in some ways was a constraint that was contrived that, you know, individuals from Africa were biologically and, and you know, intellectually lacking to the extent that, you know, th- this was something that for many people, um, not everyone, but but for the vast majority of people who were in the kind of slave holding class or not slave holders, but in, even in that class, it seemed intuitive, an intuitive constraint upon the potentiality. Um, we can think about that in terms of gender and in the constraint, you know, the, that, you know, for instance, one of my all time favorite thinkers, intellectual heroes, um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was himself highly vested in a notion that women were intellectually inferior by and large and were not able to function intellectually. And, and I have, you know, I have to accept that that was a, you know, he was this brilliant intellect, but still fully believed in that as a kind of quote unquote, re- that this contrived constraint was real. Um, but there, then there are real constraints that yeah. I think you are absolutely. And, and for me, and I think this is one of like the, you know, there's like kind of questions in, in, in social thought and in, in the study of society. And then there are like the questions and it's like sorting those like one from the other um, seems to be, and, and, and often we only are, are they're only realized by most people retrospectively. And in some ways, a definition of a revolutionary might be someone who can identify those constrived constraints before anyone else, like a revolutionary thinker. But for most people, as you're saying, most of the time, they're only able to be identified. Like now, oh, oh shit, no, women, wow, they can win Nobel Prizes and and do awesome maths. Like, who would have thought, you know? Like, and and it's like, uh, now what seems to us so, for most people seems second nature, was if you go back, you could talk to very smart people. And I cited like Rousseau as an example, who were just, it, it was outside of their ken. It wasn't like they were refuting it. It was like, well, it's just, it's, you know, what what Gramsci would call common sense. It's just, of yeah. course. So yeah. how do we sort those out? I guess that. Yeah, that no, this is, this is, this is, uh, this is, I think in some ways, uh, uh, the, Arguably, the, the, the question on which any systematic politics hinges is that of which constraints you think of as hard constraints and which constraints you think of as soft constraints. And when I say systematic politics, I mean everything from, you know, uh, uh, dogmatic Marxism to the relatively few serious uh, proponents of like a Leo Straussian conservatism or something like this, mm. uh, or, or serious liberals like, like Rawlsians, um, uh, any, any systematic politics, it starts in a sense from the identification of some constraints as soft and others as hard. And I don't like to distinguish between real and less real or real and contrived mostly because, um, you know, the, our constructed constraints end up having quite a bit of material force. The the gender constraint. I read. I read. By the way, Aristotle's Politics with with students in my rhetoric and democracy class. And one of the things we always spend a bunch of time on is Aristotle's going through like you know who can be a, a, a citizen, who can be a, a political. and what are the what are the characteristics? And at the end of the day, it all hinges on on voice, on speech, on the capacity to uh, produce persuasive discourse uh, to other other symbol 
Sybil using animals. And he's laying out, well, who can do this? Well, you know, children can't. They're going to be able to later, but they can't yet. And slaves can't because it's part of their, like, natural slavish nature. Obviously, there are people who end up being slaves, but they don't have a slavish nature. He's got a whole systematic explanation for that. It's garbage. It's bad. You know, as I say to my students Mm -hmm. who read Aristotle, Aristotle's awesome. He was also a giant dickhead. Um, but, but, well, yeah, I mean, can but, we just but, put but, like, but, pretty much every great philosopher in that category? Yeah. Giant dickhead. <laughs> but so, so, but, but what's, but what's interesting, what's interesting is he's got this whole like systematic, you know, classic Aristotelian sort of argument for why these categories of people do have speech and these ones don't, so on and so forth. And then he gets to women and he's like, and women are just not good at it. And it's like, whoa, 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 hold the phone, brother. <laughs> you're you don't have an argument for that. You're just saying it. That's fucking interesting. Now, so there's there's Aristotle when he's talking about who can meaningfully participate in the polis, he excludes women. Uh, uh, without really trying to make an argument, he just says flatly, Oh, they're just not good at speech. Yeah, because like obviously anybody who's who's had human relations knows that people vary widely in like how persuasive they are. Uh, so he doesn't he, he can he can come up with this conceptual structure of the natural slave, uh, which obviously I'm not <laughs> uh, affirming in any way. I'm just saying that it's internally consistent. Um, uh, he can come up with these kinds of uh, uh, conceptual architectures for those who can't necessarily can't produce political speech, but he can't do it on gender because it's absolutely at odds with even the common sense of his own time. I mean, think of Aspasia uh, uh, and Pericles, um, many of whose orations are, are uh, attributed at least in some measure to Aspasia. Um, uh, yeah. Right. So even, even is it somewhat at odds with his own mentor who, you know, he broke with in important ways and obviously, but Plato, you know, was willing to accept that women could clearly be part of the guardian class, right. In in his ideal world. Um, in in part responding to the material reality that women in, in, in ancient Greece were not at the same rates as men, but in a variety of the different city-states, women were, were soldiers, were, were, were fighters. They were, they were part of the, the, the fighting class and had clearly, again, just coming back to like anybody who has had even semi-functional human relations with another person <laughs> knows that people across many genders have a wide range of persuasive capacities. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so anyways, but so, so, so there, here's this totally contrived constraint, right? It doesn't work at all. He doesn't even really try to make it work in a very un-Aristotelian way. It's actually one of the most interesting parts of the politics for me because it's so at odds with Aristotle, the great system builder. He just, right. here's, here's something that's central, really, right? You're going to say half of, half of the otherwise uh, potential citizen population can't be. Why? Ah, they're just not good at it. <laughs> That's well, such I mean, an unerrational un- thing to say. Um, well, you're saying you gave it the old Philly, like, come on. Come on. You yeah, know, he, that was his argument. It's like, come on. Women. Seriously. What up with that? He's like, women, what up with that? And that's, and that's, and, and that's interesting 
like it's interesting in in terms of the text and what it means about the moment and blah blah blah. But it's also interesting because, and this is my point about why I'm not I don't really like to say real versus construct contrived, but rather hard right. soft. Like it's obviously contrived, but it's also ends up being a real constraint in the sense of being taken up into the doxa, into the common sense for, for centuries, for, for many, many, many people, uh, across. Amen. No, I agree. A whole, that's, you're speaking my language there. I mean, and to me, that's what's, I guess, I guess I use the, the term contrived almost, uh, provocatively because a lot of my understanding of, of politics and, and how political systems and, and, and practices and, and power and so forth becomes, um, developed and expressed is is a, a process where the contrived becomes real, um, yeah. you know, and yeah, so um, that that I you know we tend you know so I guess the common you know connotation of contrived is that it's kind of flimsy and piffy, but I, I guess I, I use it as, in, as, in, in intentionally provocatively, Mm-mm. whereas the contrived becomes real. We make it real. Um, uh, Benedetto Croce Artifice. has this great. Um, yeah. Um, line where you know politics is is um, a process where what is useful is constantly being transformed into what is moral. Yeah. You know that that is one of the best kind of lines on politics because that's you know I teach intro to political science and that's a big part of the class is like well, what do we mean by politics or what is politics and you know that that notion the process of by by which what is useful is consistently or you know, persistently transformed into what is moral. You know, and this it's, is it's like this a factory is- of producing morality. To you know we talked about. The use of of provocative or not provocative, like kind of absurd, extreme examples to hopefully get at something useful. And maybe I'll try that here, where it's like if I wanted to develop a society and and I want to, and I'm thinking about constraints, and then I, I'd say, well, obviously, it, you know, as Aristotle kind of wasn't able to do, like if I wanted to create, you know, wanted to have this rule or or have a society where women were limited to very um, specific roles and not in, that had no kind of intellectual function or um, didn't involve, like as you said, persuasive speech or so forth. That is something that is not rooted in 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 a hard constraint. That's something that is, as you would say, a soft constraint. But if I wanted to create a society that was that was predicated or or built around the notion that people would be able to um, rapidly fly of their own volition from place to place, then be like, well, you can't do that. You know, I mean, you, and it's absurd, of course, but no, I no, mean, no, in no. some ways, like this is great. This that's is a hard actually, constraint. No, no, this is great. So, so yeah and no. Uh, okay. I I'm, I want to pull it back to like one layer of abstraction out and 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 make the generalized statement that mm. again. Any systematic politics sets out from the articulation of some features of the world as hard constraints and others as soft constraints. Mm. And we don't, those are not ontically given. Like, I mean, hell, with CRISPR, maybe we'll be able to. uh, yeah, sorry. For the listeners, ontically given. Um, so that would mean that it, it, you know, not as a kind of natural status of, of the world as it is. Like it, 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 it doesn't have to be that way. Just, yeah, it doesn't a, have to be that way. Okay. Exactly. It's All not right, intrinsic cool. and automatic, but rather mm. subject to contestation and negotiation, which things should be counted as hard and soft, which constraints are relevant, which are not relevant. And so, so when I distinguish between hard and soft constraints, that's a methodological choice that I, I take everybody to make consciously or unconsciously to some extent in some way. 
Now, you don't have to call it that. You can call it lots of things. So I would actually say that constraint thinking, and I mean, this is part of like one of the things we were talking about freedom before, part, part of what I argued in my first book about freedom as the negotiation of constraints was exactly this, right? This is what kind of animal we are. Not only humans, any symbolic animal is a constraint negotiating an animal. And part of what that means is on some level, we apprehend a world that is thus in such a way and needn't be. And every politics sets out some features of world and says, yes, but these ones need be or they ought to be, to go back to Croce. Um, and these ones, these ones are malleable. And I think that's a, that's an unavoidable thing to do. I don't think that like that's that's part of what it's like to be somebody. We each of us, both individually and then also collectively in discourse, we we inhabit a world that in fact will be different than as it has been. We can sort of <laughs> predict some ways that it'll be different, and we can sort of predict some ways that it won't be different. And the reason that I'm personally more interested in hard constraints than soft constraints is A, and this definitely goes back to that Croce quote, a lot of the things that you or I might be inclined to think of as soft constraints are precisely the things that uh, uh, status quo hierarchies are most interested in insisting are hard constraints. Right. Mm. So there, there are only two genders. It's like, well, that's not (laughs) actually the world's just really complicated. That's the thing about that. The world's really complicated. Uh, Right. Women don't have a voice. Think of Aristotle there. Women, they're just not good at persuading people. It's like, really, Aristotle, you couldn't even, well, come on. And so that's, that's taking something that, you or I might be interested in saying this is a soft constraint and articulating its its hardness. And what I'm interested in doing is saying, all right, what are some minima? What are some things that like I, I, I don't I, I think it would be very hard for a reasonable person to contest will uh, um, uh, uh, pervade a future contiguous with our present and that however we imagine a best possible world, it's going to have to account for those. And, and, and what I'm interested in right now in the current book is I'm really interested in thinking about that in relatively practical ways. So there's some, some hard constraints that uh, like I think, you know, say hierarchy. Hierarchies more or less induced by the way that the symbol systems work, the way that languages work. Uh, their hierarchies are all the same. They're not universally like one way, but something like hierarchizing does seem to show up all over the place in language. But I'm not really interested in that kind of hard constraint, mostly because that's the, the hard constraints that, that almost certainly are hard constraints you don't have to argue for them. They're just going to show up anyways. You don't need to persuade anybody. They're going to be there self-evidently. It's the hard constraints that it's like, I think this is one. Those are the interesting ones. It's the ones that I might be wrong. So I think automation is a hard constraint on any future contiguous to the present. I don't think capitalism is. I think capitalism is a soft constraint. Hell, you know, depending who you ask, we're already not in capitalism anymore. 
you know, Mackenzie Ward. Well, it, yeah. You both written about that. Interestingly. Um, well, that came, that came to mind. Um, well, you know, what comes to mind, cause I, I wanted to try to, before we, um, um, turning to kind of issues of, of, you know, we talked about kind of um, automation and work and in the, the role of algorithms and data. And so before turning to there, I just thought one way to, to kind of put a little, um, meat on, on, on the, um, you know, of, of, of the kind of discussion we've been having is like, for me, an example of, of a, a, a soft constraint, a soft constraint, and you just—it's just what you hit on with capitalism, kind of parading around as a hard constraint—is um, the conceptualization of human beings as utility maximizers. Yeah, and 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 it really resonated with me because one of my thoughts about you know economics—I'm a political economist, and so I've studied quite a bit of of what we would call kind of standard liberal economics as, as a course of study, and so I'm fairly intimately familiar with it, and. Uh, one of the things that's always struck me in terms of the kind of historiography of the rise of, of this way of, of social organization is just how much work was put into convincing people that, no, this is naturally who you are. And it, and it is kind of a paradox, right? Because it's like you shouldn't have to persuade someone that they're naturally a certain way. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, and, and, and even going into because this is, you know, something we I really spend a lot of time. I teach a class called States and Markets on on kind of more contemporary political economy or modern political economy in the last 50 years. And we really go through the sustained efforts by folks like um, Friedrich Hayek. Um, who, you know, in, in public, like, you know, quote unquote, raising public awareness, um, instructing the public. Um, there was even the, the business groups in Korea actually started these public campaigns to try to teach people about market behavior. And there's this one great, I mean, sometimes as a researcher, you know, and I'm sure, you know, you, you stumble across something and you're like, holy shit, like how, like, this is the thing. And this, all this was, I'm telling you, it was, a, it was, a, it was um, from a magazine. I forget the magazine's name. It was a headline from a U.S. magazine, like a kind of consumer affairs or like business group magazine. Um, in, and I think it was put out in like 1920 or, not, you know, 1915 or something like that. So just about four or five years after Korea had been colonized by Japan. And I shit you not, Ira, do you know what the headline was? And this was full on, not a shred of irony. We're not talking about like, you know, getting lulls in, in the 2021 or whatever. It said, teaching Koreans to want things. And I said, Ooh. holy shit. <laughs> wow. Like, you want to talk about the sinews of like how literally it said, like the article was about like teaching Koreans to want things. Fuck, man. Like, man, this is like the golden chalice. Like I've, I mean, just, I, I, and this was like, I just looking through JSTOR and I was like, well, what kind of shit were people writing on Korea in like 1910 in US press? And like, I come across this article and it's like, and, and so the, that it going all this way, like, you know, you, you would imagine if it was very kind of quote unquote natural, which is another interesting word that, that kind of shapes our thinking, um, you know, you wouldn't have to do so much work to, to, to convince people that this is how they naturally are. Um, and, and so that to me is like a classic example of a hard constraint or of a soft constraint parading as a hard constraint, this notion that we are utility maximizers, that we go out in the world and there's things we want and we set about in, in the most efficient possible way to obtain them, which is like yeah. so much of our social organization is predicated on that being a hard constraint. Um, yeah. So on, on that note, I think this is a good time to like turn to so talking about capitalism, which is obviously, you know, sets in, in, in critiques of capitalism, which is often centered around work and automation. And, and it's in what's interesting in thinking about preparing for our discussion today is just how long this history of a fear of automation, a notion of a threat of automation, the idea of dehumanization and and, and how 
in history, often the Luddites who were literally were known for like destroying technology that threatened their way of, of working and, and existing. And, and obviously this is a big motif in Marx. And so um, how long, you know, relatively a hundred, few hundred years, this concern about automation going back to like textile manufacturing and so forth that this is not a new thing, but it does seem very different. It, it, it's at once, you know, something that's been around for quite some time, but something that seems to be very different. Um, and so I, and I know you, you know, you're working in this area and, and, and I believe you're working on a book project and this is one of the themes, right? It's this notion of automation and work. Um, so yeah. how, how does that fit into this, you know, this, now we've kind of established this template of constraints, soft constraints, hard constraints of future society. Um, how does automation and work kind of fit into that? Yeah, this is great. So there's in that book, essentially the the book is called Rhetorical Constitution, uh, the possibility of democracy and uh, or composing democratic possibility. I go back and forth on the subtitle. Um, and, 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 the, and it's fundamentally about what kinds of constitutions would it take to compose democratic possibility? In other words, what kind of content and what kind of process uh, for constitution writing might be entailed uh, for those who are wishing to produce a polity that transcends their own necessarily uh, uh, elite uh, rhetorical power that enables a constitution to come into force in the first place. And, and so far, we, we nobody's done that. We don't have any um, democracies. Mm. Uh, so the question is, what might it take to produce a democracy? And, and as such is necessarily a question about real human futures. Um, and so and I'm not going to go into the whole book, but just one of the things that I'm laying out in the uh, uh, first chapter of the book is what I see as six hard constraints on any future contiguous for the present. And so those are those are things that the near future constitution makers will have to negotiate will. 200 years from now, constitution makers negotiate if we're still around. I have no, I have no idea. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't truck in, in, uh, universals or, or a historical transcendentals. I don't have any opinions about that sort of thing. Um, but it, it hard constraints for the present, the near present, um, include one, uh, the flexibilization of labor, uh, or, Characterization, flexibilization, or precaritization. Two, the automation of work. Three, the financialization of capital. Four, the datification of everything. Five, the algorithmic disposition of life. And six, Gaia, the 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 Earth system as a system that returns to us from our own activity in ways that are uh, more or less catastrophic. And I, I mean Gaia in the sense that um, Bruno Latour and uh, Isabel Stegers have talked about it. Mm. So, so <clears throat> when I'm talking about automation then as a constraint, obviously, like you say, there's nothing new about automation. I mean, automation goes back at least to the Egyptians. Like automation, we've been saying, let's <laughs> – Let's have some of the shit that we do be shit that happens without us doing it for a very long time, right? That's not a novel. But as you, but as you say, it, it's, it's 
and, and this is the case for all of these heart constraints, all of them are interwoven with each other and they're all intensifications of long processes. So when I'm interested in them uh, as hard constraints on, on democratic futures, uh, and that's not like, how do, we, how do we save democracy? I mean, like, you know, show me some and I'll try to help you figure out how to save it, but I haven't seen any yet. Um, uh, but if we want to, if we want to make democracy possible, what are the constraints that we have to negotiate for that utopia to be pragmatic? And, and I think, and I think one of those is going to be, um, much, much, much intensified automation of many discrete, uh, uh components of, of human, uh, work, um, uh, human activity on the world. And what you're thinking about here is, would you say it, it has some um, similarities? Because I think that's, we talked about the Luddites who, you know, um, famously tried to, you know, physically destroy this technology they found threatening to their lifestyle and, and, and well-being and so forth. But um, then we have Marx who, I guess, you know, metaphorically kind of turned into the skid of automation, right? And, you know, turned turned in and, and said, well, actually, if we, if we game this out, you know, if, if we can get machines and technology to do all of the kind of, lack of a better term, grunt labor or, or, or difficult labor, and we couple that with a more emancipatory social thought or, or you know, social system, um, that is a, a way to achieve a new form of human actuality and, 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 and widespread human potentiality. Um, and, and, and so, and, you know, that's what I always thought was interesting in Marx is that rather than decrying like the kind of romantic yeah. or humanist um, decrying of technology, Marx saw it as something to kind of lean into, but of course, to match with a, a, a different set of, of kind of social ideas. Is, is, would you say something along the lines of that or? Yeah, no, I think that's a great way of putting it. I mean, part of, part of like the, the genius of, of Marx or of, you know, Rosa Luxemburg or Fanon or basically like any really great thinker uh, is that they apprehend constraints and they apprehend that those constraints aren't necessarily things that have to be negotiated the way they're being negotiated in the present society. So Marx, right, in the economic and philosophical manuscripts of 1844, he's, he's quite concerned about the ways in which automation in the context of a capitalist mode of production and and instead of relations of exchange tends towards dehumanization. And in the Grundrisse, he's absolutely committed to the emancipatory uh, value of automation in the context of uh, an emancipatory mode of production instead of relations of exchange. And I think like that's right. part of that's why part of why Marx, somebody like Marx, basically any serious thinker remains relevant for a pretty long time is because they do look at hard constraints, but they don't think that those hard constraints must be what they presently are. They recognize that they, they can be negotiated differently. And so there's a sense in which, you know, if you think about the way that water flows, I live in northern Arizona and I live at elevation, I live at 7,000 feet. Um, and uh, the McGeehan Rim is a little bit to the south of me. It drops down to about 4,000 feet, 3,500 feet. And the, the flow of water, for now, <laughs> uh, uh, channels down the rim and cuts vast sort of holes in the earth, essentially, both visibly above the earth's structure and then in, in the geological subsurface. And any given channel is a constraint on on water, 
right? The water is going to flow, but it's going to flow in these channels. But it's not going to flow in them forever. It's going to flow in them for a while. <laughs> and Hey, sir, not to the U.S. Army, Army Corps of Engineers. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> A bunch and of dynamite. We'll make some channels forever, forever. <laughs> the Hoover Dam will. Ne- oh wait, uh oh. Um. So anyway, so but so so. I anyway, my point in saying that is just to say that I, I think like what's important in in how we take up uh, the constraints that we want to articulate is hard. Is if we're committed to anything like uh, a, a utopian vision of political possibility, we have to be committed to it with the idea that the interweaving of different constraints won't, in fact, necessarily look the way it presently looks. And in some ways, would it be fair? And I'm, I'm asking genuinely, um, you know, would it be fair to say this stands kind of somewhat juxtaposed to the um, more anarchist vision of, of a kind of utopian, you know, and a, 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 a pragmatist anarchist, right? Utopia that envisions a little bit more of a kind of unconscious or random or, or instantaneous forms of social organization and, and so forth. Do you think it stands somewhat in, in, in a different, you know, um, perspective from that? Yes, that's a, that's hard for me to answer because there's so many mm. competing anarchist traditions, right? Right. Um, yeah, I, I guess what I find is like a unifying impulse is is a belief that human beings, you know, I, I think mo- a lot of anarchism tends to focus on a smaller scale, right, on one level, I think. And, and the idea within a community sense, um, I think, you know, mis- anarchism is one of the most misunderstood kind of political philosophies, but it tends to have a more, I tend to be more of a belief or an acceptance of the notion of a kind of, what's the word? I mean, there's a word for it that I'm just, uh, you know, my 44 year old mind is, is this uh, spontaneity. That's what spontaneity. Yeah. So see, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Spontaneous kind of forms. And, and if, and I'm not, I don't, and I said, I'm genuinely asking, I'm not even sure um, if they are, um, it stand in opposition, but it seems that, Anarchism tends to have a very, a very deep suspicion of any sort of hard constraints in terms of um, social organization. I'm thinking, of course, we talked um, previously about David Graeber's work, who is probably one of the most important anarchist thinkers um, of the last 40 or 50 years. Um, and he seems to have that notion that the extent of what we would call hard constraints are are very very limited and far more limited than we commonly presuppose. And I don't know if that actually is in opposition to what you're getting at, but I'm just wondering how you, yeah. how that would fit in. I guess. Yeah. I, okay. That's actually really interesting. Let me try and do justice to this. Uh, let me, and let's say just with Graeber, cause there's too many in there. Let's say with, right. Graeber, yeah. So let's say we'll with give Graeber, Graeber yeah. versus, <laughs> versus maybe a, and I don't want to be ungenerous, but like a, a kind of like a facile, early understanding of, of anarchism sort of first find themselves coming to that. So uh, what I'm saying is definitely at odds with the latter for sure. Right. So either positive or negative sort of first early understanding of anarchism tends to be no rules, no archaic, no, no. And, and obviously I'm, you know, uh, I, I am for better and for worse, uh, uh, Guilty as charged of of imagining <laughs> the 
this great titled book, The Utopia of Rules. Uh, uh, so, like, I think that there's actually a real place for for sort of bureaucratic organization. I think that um, for any kind of even quasi large scale society, that that there is a lot to be said for having to do things that we don't wish to do because we owe it to others and we're not likely, at least apropos of our current set of conditions, to become like spontaneously, emergently uh, um, decent. <laughs> so, so in that sense, a little bit of a pessimist or a dark. No, I'm, I'm, I would generally share um, that view as well. Yeah. But, but, but that said, I mean, I think like part of what's going on in – you know, uh, Graeber and Wengro's book it is this sense of not of lack of social organization. And I would say like most, most, you know, and I don't want to be uncharitable, but like drawing that line between the kind of like facile, oh, I just kind of happened on anarchism and yes, you know, mom and dad. Like you're pissed <laughs> off like 17 yeah, year old yeah, like yeah. kid in like, like Illinois anarchism. That's right. Bad religion. I'm going for a walk. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so like, Not that there's anything wrong with that. Oh, you know? Oh man, yeah, I'm so but, grateful that I had that. I'd have been right, but, out of it. I'd have been right, but it's probably it's probably not it's probably not a a, a a viable social form. No, exactly, exactly. And I think like like the serious anarchist thinkers are all thinkers of organization. They're just thinkers right. of fluid organization. And and I'll, granted, there's like you know at the maybe like really hard Raul Vaniegum revolution of everyday life edge. There's a kind of anarchism that I find like useful as provocation to read, but I don't think has much that's interesting or useful to say about how social forms actually are likely to happen. But, but shy of that, like if you've got like a Murray Bookchin anarchism, or my friend James Martell at San Francisco State, is, it really thinks a lot about just what it is to live without RK, without some central organizing principle, which doesn't mean that you live without organization. And I think like what's happening in Graeber and Wengro's book is precisely a, a, a detailed, beautiful vision of the efflorescence of durable which is to say institutionalized necessarily to some extent bureaucratized forms of social organization throughout human history. And that kind of anarchism, like the difference between that and whatever exactly I am is not very large. <laughs> right. Well, and just one thing too, again, is where, where um, when you say um, Graeber, Graeber and was it Wengross? I, I'm sorry, I forget yeah, the yeah, co-author's yeah. name. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a book where we, um, myself and, and Ira are both reading um, presently called The Dawn of Everything. It made a big splash and got a lot of, rev you know, reviews in the Times and, and so forth. But I'm um, referring to that book. And I guess in some ways this brings us back in, in, into what we were discussing earlier is that my understanding and in, in, I've gotten through about, you know, the first half or a little bit more than half of the Graeber, um, this Graeber and Wingrove's book, um, The Dawn of Everything. And, and I read um, his book on debt. And, and one motif is, is I think he's trying to use his anthropological work of, of ancient societies and ancient political forms and, and, their, and their variety to point out through this voluminous, like bringing all of this data and this research and this kind of really interesting analysis of these societies to just say, you know, all of these things you think of as hard constraints are not. 
or 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 not you, not you, Ira, um, yeah. the, the, the capital Y, you, <laughs> you, the reader. Right. I didn't want to, I want to turn this interesting. I didn't want to turn this antagonistic. Um, but like what what you, the reader, thinks as hard constraints. Well, look at like there's just, you know, look at all these examples. There's just all there's all these different ways to be a human society. And yeah. and that doesn't and, and it's not an endorsement of one way over the other. He's not endorsing the Aztecs. He's saying, but if you look at how the Aztecs lived and these sub communities of Aztecs, that it, it should open your mind to realize that things are far less deterministic than um, present social conditions lead you to believe. And that's kind of, I find like the, the impulse of like Graver's work that I really enjoy. Wonderful. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, like it is, it is intellectually serious and systematic in its delivery of, an, of, of visions of anarchist possibility. And I mean, I think like in, in my, in my reading of that, one of the, my favorite parts of the entire book is looking at societies that have different forms of social organization by season. And it's not even all, they're, they don't even all do it the same way. It's not like, oh, when you're out hunting, you're authoritarian. And when you're at home, you're democratic. No, some, some groups of peoples are authoritarian when they're out hunting. Others are democratic when they're out hunting and authoritarian right. at home. And, and, and so like this, this, I mean, to me, to my mind, part of the, the offering of that book is this, just incredibly vital life thrust of we have so many possible ways of being together and being together in pretty durable ways, like not just for, you know, a decade or like, you know, okay, well, we set up a commune in Vermont and uh, in Vermont, (laughs) in Vermont, uh, (laughs) we set set up a commune in Vermont, I don't know where I got Vermont, (laughs) Uh, we have a commune in Vermont and, uh, um, uh, you know, we're, we're, uh, uh, it was all going great for a couple of years and, and, and then it all fell apart. Like part and then of our guru all- became, and then our guru became, uh, uh, manifested as a total psychopath. I mean, that's right, right. Exactly. And, and then, and then there were squabbles over property because <laughs> right. uh, they, so what they're offering is this, this sense of like, no, 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 like actually, we're not they're not talking about non-rule-based systems they're just showing uh over and over and over in so many different ways that that we have a lot of possible uh decisional historical examples to draw on when we think about what we want now what i do think i'm interested in that i don't i just don't think they're interested in i don't think graber's sure and I think this does in some ways differentiate me from some of my friends who are anarchists, where we are a little bit dispositionally uh, uh, oriented towards different things. I don't think we're in disagreement. We're just interested in tracing out different pieces of the picture. I am, I am, I'm interested in, okay, but so like right now, next, <laughs> what are the constraints? Cool. Cool, yeah. cool. cool. But like, how about, how about next year? Right. No. And that's a very different question. 
Yes. And that sets up, it just sets up the question very differently. So it gets you away. Well, you know what? I'll tell you, you probably are the least popular person at the academic conference. Holy shit. You want to ask people what's happening next year. That, that's oh, going to really ruin the party. Everywhere I go. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just joking. That's going to really ruin the party. Oh, that's a really nice idea. But like, what would that tell us about what we should do next year? Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Political science <laughs> predicts the past. Uh, hey, you're breaking the rules here, buddy. <laughs> Speak about constraints. Yeah, I'm gonna blow this whole convention up. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and in fairness, like part of why we don't want to talk about what's happening, and I mean, I really want to be part of why we don't want to talk about what's happening next year, quad next year, is because mostly whatever's happening next year will be organized by whichever shitheads are most empowered, like right this moment. And so, you know, and that sucks actually. And I'm, and on that, I'm not, I'm not really interested in that level of constraint. If I were, I'd put on a suit and a tie and I'd glad hand, <laughs> you know, and get involved in electoral politics in some capacity. But, uh, uh, I actually wouldn't put it on a suit and a tie. I live in Northern Arizona. I would. Uh, hey, well, you got the. You already got the Fetterman. You got the Fetterman precedent. You could be the Fetterman of Northern Arizona. I, I, I would. I would run on a pro-gun socialism policy. Um, pro-gun eco-socialism. Um, but so so, <laughs> I'm just fucking around. But so, uh, um, eco-guns like guns made from goes. from that's right sustainably grown trees. <laughs> that's right. We gotta get the. We gotta get the Foscad uh, uh, build your own community onto that. Like, why don't they make them out of bamboo? But so so uh, so no. But but in but in seriousness, like I, I am, I'm not quite interested in in next year. I said next year, so I I brought that right. Up. But I get your point. Like you know more what I mean. I'm not. I am. I'm interested in like what what might we really be able to do, and I, and I think like if you look at the current organization of the world and that take just just our our carbon emissions emergency take nothing else none of the other components of our general crisis take just that one piece and say okay so what are the people who have the most power doing right now well they're ramping up carbon emissions why would they do that well there are lots of reasons most of them are not very nice but let's say most generously because they're making the bet that if you spend more calories, it will buy some techno magic that allows you to decarbonize in time to not be hot house earth. And they might be right. That'll go badly for a lot of us, like extremely fucking badly. But hey, hey, Ira. Yeah. Elon just needs another three years, okay? Buy <laughs> fucking Elon three years. <laughs> He's almost. And, uh, yeah, there. I do call him Elon because yeah. we're friends. Yeah, no, I mean, you guys are, how would he not be want to be? Uh, you know, uh, offered a, a perspective on the world that's reality based. Um, right. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt, but go ahead. So no, no. That, what you know, how just buying time, right? I mean, that, that, yeah, but, I think but, that's actually. But so my point with that though is to say, like, if that's what we're up to, like that's the general organization of the world right now. We are we are metabolizing as many calories as possible. We are not mm. now, I, and I'm actually like I don't, I don't really want to talk about it right now, but like I'm I'm a I'm invested in degrowth, uh, like I, I have like some scholarship that's that's oriented towards that. I'm like I mm. my own I I think it's it will fail, but I think we'd be idiots not to 
<laughs> I think we'd be idiots to bet against ourselves. <laughs> right. Um, like when the stakes are so high. Um, but, but, uh, but like just, just not from the perspective of advocating, but just like looking what's most likely, what's most likely is things, you know, continue in a pattern of staggered collapse that hits different places differentially, uh, over at least the next two decades. And then if everybody's lucky, um, techno magic get kicks in and, uh, uh, you know, saves uh, a portion of the human population uh, in ways that are decent. Um, right. Okay. So that's, that's the general conditions of our current world and our near future in that near future. techno magic i mean that really is true i mean it's it's stark but i mean that's really i think everyone's kind of bought in like we, we were kind of just like throw our hand you know throw our hands up like okay techno magic cool Hopefully someone's magic. gonna come up with some yeah. shit. we're gonna decarbonize and have cold fission <laughs> right and solar and yeah i mean it's all gonna work don't worry guys well, now, I mean, there's, there, you know, Ezra Klein, who I, I quite enjoy, I listen to, you know, from time to time, his podcast, I've, you know, I've, I've read his stuff over the years. Um, and he had a, a really interesting podcast, you know, taking seriously that in the increasing kind of, I don't know, seriousness, you know, respectability of people who are who are favoring what they call kind of like, it used to be very fringy, like extreme climate interventions, like firing shit in the atmosphere. Yeah, it's, it's actually... And, and like... Yeah, it's not. It's really that came up in the sense of, yeah, in the in the context of like waiting on techno magic. It's like as shit becomes more dire, like people who used to be like, yeah, these people are fucking nuts. Like keep them out of the room. Are increasingly getting toeholds in the room of of the the climate kind of. Oh, a hundred percent. And actually, one of the one of the worst is, of course, one of the most popular, which is like, let's just put some sulfates up in the atmosphere. Um, that's already yes. asking a fair bit of heating. Um, uh, yeah, will we, does that hold everybody hostage on the entire planet to whoever's right. putting them up there? Yeah. Uh, anyways, but so anyways, uh, just uh, man, we. I, I've I've got all kinds of things to say about this, but what I really wanted to say about it relative to what we're talking about is the likelihood of one of the ways that this sorry the one of the ways that this cashes out in the in next decade or so two decades is that many places that are currently states in the West fail in order will fail in one or more ways, and right. we will along the way it is relatively likely um uh short of much more radical climate change faster which is also quite plausible um but it's relatively likely that we'll see a fair bit of uh new constitutionalism and so where where my book is going is is to say okay so in those moments in those hotter darker moments uh uh of difficult founding on uh and against the backdrop of catastrophe because that's of course, how founding actually happens. Every founding happens at the site of a catastrophe. And it, it really, is, it redounds to our intellectual shame that we have spent so little time thinking about that, theoretically. All of our foundings happen at the sites of catastrophe. Um, that's a little bit of a Maurice Blanchot point in uh, writing, writing the disaster, writing the disaster. Um, uh, but so, so, in this, in this, I think extremely likely resurgence of constitution composing in the coming years, 
The question is, what kinds of hard constraints will those constitution composers negotiate? They'll be negotiating a hotter, darker world with less biodiversity, uh, um, more Different, I guess I was going to say more difficult, but actually that remains to be seen. Different organizations uh, of resource production and distribution, they will be almost certainly negotiating a world where a wide range of currently human accomplished tasks, including things that we don't necessarily think of as tasks because they're ultra tailorized, discrete subcomponents of tasks, are accomplished by machines. They'll be writing constitutions for a world where um, ubiquitous surveillance means that almost everything becomes a possible data point. And the, the data sets that are produced by that can only be constructed by machines. They're so We're already, to a large extent at this point, the d- data sets are so vast that mm. you can't actually sit down and write adequate parameters, you have to turn that over to a a self-reinforcing machine learning mechanism to some kind of algorithm. Mm. Um, Right. It's it's, it's out of like, it's out of like a technician's like capacity. Like they, they yeah, we haven't been able to cohere. You know, this is a political economist. We haven't been able to come up with a coherent story about the global economy for over a hundred right. years. I mean, like, right. like not really. Not something that does real justice to the complexity of it all. We have all these like statistical shortcuts, um, uh, and, and that's becoming much as we turn ever more of what is into little reified points of of, of data into. Each, each one a datum somewhere in, in a schema for conceiving of what is as data. Um, the connecting of those points in order to dispose our lives will be accomplished ever more without uh, uh, all that much moment by moment human intervention. And, and so these are that that goes, as you can see, sort of obviously hand in hand in both directions with automation. Right. One of the things that I, I wanted to kind of jump in because you, you mentioned the date collapse and it's something we had talked about previously. And, and I, I think and you said the Westphalian system. And again, that's just a system of states like this idea of like sovereign states and you have all these borders and, and, and so forth. And I think the state system as it functions, as it exists, is, is such a metaphor for. Um, I think in this new kind of construction you're talking about in these, this, this catastrophe and constitution kind of cycle is, is a real, um, and I don't have the answers, but a, a real reconsideration or um, understanding of, 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 of equality. And I think that's one of the things that really I find most compelling in Rousseau and, and um, just how, how early on he was able to suss out how this was really being implemented and in, in, in how something that is a soft constraint was being kind of transformed into this quasi hard constraint. And, and, and that is this notion of equality and, and, and that what was proffered as a, a, an equalizing mechanism or a liberating mechanism, Rousseau saw as, as, I mean, to put it bluntly, as somewhat of a scam, as somewhat of a fraud, um, that 
you know, and, and I see that in the context of the state system or individuals within quote unquote free societies, it is, it, you know, to put it in the, the modern parlance of, of our students, um, you know, these, these, uh, whippersnapper young 20 year olds. Um, I mean, it strikes me as a big fucking massive gaslight, you know? Okay. You can say that Namibia and um, Germany are both states equally sovereign. And, and I don't think that's completely meaningless, but on, on a real uh, you know, objective assessment of like what Namibia or, um, you know, Cambodia is as a state, as, as a, as a, as an entity, as a social entity, um, and what Germany or Spain is, or, or what have you is, um, you know, they aren't, they aren't on equal footing. And, and in some ways calling them equal is a mechanism for eschewing responsibility. And I think that is a, you know, maps onto, societies that promote quote unquote individual equality and i i'm not diminishing i think e equality and and human equality is it's something i value and something that is important but i do tend to agree with rousseau that as practiced and implemented within kind of bourgeois capitalist society that he was kind of seeing form and that's what's so amazing about rousseau he saw this at such an early stage this tendency is one that ensnares as much as it liberates and, and, and I don't, and I think that's something that has to be, uh, uh, you know, that I talk with my students about this every year, like every, everyone or most people and not everyone, but quite a few people are like, yeah, equality is good. But what, what does that really mean in, in practice? What does it mean to, to, to have equality among societies, within societies? And I think it's a difficult question that I certainly don't have all the answers to, but I think that is something that also is, is part of some sort of reconstruction. I don't know. That's kind of my, yeah. my, my take on it. No, no. I mean, I, t I totally, I mean, there's no, and it's interesting. You go back to, I hate to go back to Aristotle all the time, but you know, mm. annoyingly, he really did lay out a lot of the problematics in, in the politics. Mm, sure. We continue not to have satisfying resolutions for, uh, including things like what's the correct size of a, of a polis. Um, and, uh, um, <clears throat> what exactly is political equality? And so one of the things he talks about and he's, he's interested in tracing out is um, if, if, as it is said, democracy requires equality of what is that, what, what is the character of that equality? Uh, is it right that those who are unequal in some ways should be made equal in all ways? Must it be uh, um, yeah, equality of distribution? Is uh, what's, what's the relationship uh, between, you know, uh, isocratia and, and uh, isonomia between uh, equality of power and equality before the law. Um, like we, we, there is no thinking of democracy that's coherent, that doesn't have some interest in equality. But what we ought to mean by equality uh, is essentially an unresolved question. Uh, and, and it's an unresolved question that's any given group of people organizing will arrive at some resolution and they will have arrived at some more or less durable resolution of that question. And I think like, and this is where I, I am, I guess, in some ways a little bit anarchist. I don't have, and I'm not really interested in trying to provide some RK, some like, 
you know, uh, uh, grounding law of what ought equality to mean. Uh, it satisfies me just to say you probably would need some guardrails, so you can't just mean whatever the fuck. Um, and and uh, the collective determination of what to think it means is an important rhetorical political problem. And anything that but but so sorry sorry I lost the thread for a second so anything that would be democracy as a state form to come back to your point before probably can't treat as as uh, real the fiction that in the Westphalian order every state is equally sovereign unless it's somehow a quote unquote failed state um, because that vision it doesn't describe most people's lived lives in ways that are, and I, and this is where I'm not that interested in critiquing the existing world. What I'm interested in is that doesn't describe most people's lived lives in ways that are useful for constructing future societies. And so maybe, you know, the, the city movement of the seventies through the nineties, you know, has something for it, uh, in a future, um, or maybe we end up in a, in a, in a future with far more uh, significantly repressive uh, centralized states be, or uh, state corporate, you know, proto-fascist uh, uh, organization. I don't – that's – Sadly, that, that's probably the safe bet. Make. That's probably – that's probably the – if this is a horse race, that's probably the odds on favorite, sadly. Yeah, the worst outcome is always the the safest bet, but you always got to bet right. on yourself, anyways. And right, no, for sure. So, yeah, no, but that's but anyways. So all of that is just to say that's. I feel very comfortable saying there is no realistic way of looking at the current organization of the world system and saying, oh yeah, this will probably stay relatively static and somewhat the way it has since 1992. That's not right. that's not realism. That's not pragmatism. That's not reality-based thinking. Um, mm. Now, the question of what happens next, that's an underdetermined question. There's lots of things that can happen next. And I think like – and this is where my work is is interested in laying out what I see as some hard constraints for people who are trying to decide what should happen wherever they happen to be. <laughs> <laughs> mm, no, and and I just want to just to hop in here. I guess t- to me, I, and I, I think I, I'm with you. I don't. I I and I, I'm with you on that. I have no interest in kind of trying to lay out or unfurl some grand program. I mean, we we've seen that that's either like failed or led to catastrophe, right? So I think there is a certain, um, for lack of a better term, organic kind of process to that. At the same time, I guess why I brought up what I find is this kind of pernicious. Um, use of of equality um, is that it, it it's it's something that helps us understand, and I guess it it goes to kind of the old pithy proverb um, that I think often though is is quite useful, right? If you want to go west, don't go east, right? And that in some ways it, a starting point is always knowing what you don't want, and I think really coming to grips with how pernicious equality, how it's been wielded, where, you know, hey, why, why am I, you know, why am I struggling to eat and, and working 60 hours a week and I, and I can't, you know, fix my, my broken arm properly. So, um, well, that's because you're equal, 
you know, selling the, 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 the selling someone's, you know, the ration or describing someone's subordination and, and lack of basic access to kind of a widely available in, in, in wealthier societies, human necessities as a outcome of their liberation. I think that's what Rousseau was getting at. I mean, to, to, and, and I think identifying that is not, a, it doesn't in and of itself give us an answer to the um, more affirmative, like, well, what is? And I think that's a much more open question as I would agree with you there. But I think, again, it's, it, it's, a, it's a starting point of saying like how badly this construction of equality has gone. And two, um, you know, and some liberal thinkers, I think I would put like John Stuart Mill perhaps, have at least gleaned how freaking radical equality is. That's something I always want. I always try to like w- work with with my students. Like, sit back and like, what if we really believe in in human equality and in some sort of kind of deeper sense? Like, that is a fucking radical commitment. That is deeply radical, and that is just as you're saying. We're, we're still waiting around for democracy. I mean, we're still waiting around for some some society of of equality because here, it's here. massively radical. Uh, uh, th- no, th- th- this I, I I think Kevin, this is an incredibly important point, and it's something that that people kind of pass over because it's hard. It's hard to think right. about what we ought to mean by equality. We know, we know we ought to care about it. That's like to anybody who has any kind of even remotely left leanings at all, even just soft progressive leanings, there's this general right. kind of sensibility of like, well, obviously like we need to have some sense of equality. And, and, and somewhere I, deep I, in the corners, like as Nancy Pelosi's having her like fifth grass of $500 wine, she's thinking about it. Even, even Nancy <laughs> Sorry, Pelosi. That's a cheap even shot. Nancy cheap Pelosi. shot. I actually hey, hey, no. <laughs> it's my show. I like Nancy Pelosi. It's my show. I can take a cheap shot. That's what I get. That's my, that's my, that's my, uh, that's what I get. But go ahead though. So, so you know, you, you were making a good point. Sorry to interrupt. But so, no, I th- and I think to your point, like that can't be, and this has been uh, argued by lots and lots of people. I mean, I, I think that the Anatole France Beaumont, the law in its majestic equality forbids rich and poor alike to sleep under bridges, beg in the streets and steal their bread. Uh, and I think like that, uh, yeah, <laughs> right. the law in its majestic equality, equality, whatever it means, we know now. And I mentioned uh, uh, Charles Mills earlier, like this is essentially a, a large part of what his career was given over to demonstrating. Um, uh, uh, we know, it, it, reasonable people know, I think now, that equality before the law is not an intellectually serious resting point for what we should think equality means. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. We shouldn't care about it. It just means that it's not an intellectually serious resting point. Whatever we want equality to mean once achieved, it's going to have to be more than that. Um and, and this is where, like, this is where, so Rousseau's often sort of, uh, people often treat the general will as though it's this, like, I don't know, like weird error Rousseau made. Like, oh, he just wasn't able to think it through. And so he came up with this thing that doesn't work. And it's like, no, no, no. The concept of the general will is precisely the formal category articulates the coming together of a collection of values and something like policy positions in the being, the collective being of a people. Um, 
at any given moment. I mean, this is this is why uh, I, I don't know if you've read uh, Paulina, uh, Paulina Ochoa Espejo's book uh, on the people as a process. Uh, it's really nice. Uh, it's it's very like Whiteheadian process philosophy. Uh, it's easy to get lost in the weeds. I, I taught it in a rhetoric and democracy class. My undergrads struggled with it a little bit, but but it's really the vision of people as process is a really compelling one. And, and I think like we would want to be able to say that whatever a democratic people would be, whatever a demos that could exercise the kratos of that demos would be, it's a process that involves decisions about equality that in some way meaningfully achieve it. Now what that means, that's the empty content. You can't, I can't fill that in in advance. Um, nor yeah, nor can anyone or or anyone any effort to do so actually, and this is a kind of paradox, right? Any any conscientious effort to to quote unquote the, you know through a singular system um, produce uh, equality will certainly not will certainly probably do the opposite. If if not fail, will in in all likelihood do the opposite. So yeah, that's the kind of you know one of the many paradoxes surrounding the the, the political and social world, right? Like a programmatic approach to equality will almost certainly fail or do the opposite and yet might still be better than the alternative sometimes <laughs> well that is that is you know that is why you know I, one thing about being a, a student of politics and someone who studies politics is and this is something that uh you know that my big takeaway and maybe maybe i'll even give a, a tip of the hat to to old thomas hobbes here you know the big lesson of studying politics is like shit can always get worse <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's don't don't get it twisted like shit can yeah. you think it's bad it can always get worse you know um and like you know like hey maybe people in the soviet union like god lenin that guy was turned out to be quite a tyrant can't be worse than him wrong you know not to be flipped but i mean you know you could imagine people a lot of people in the soviet union when lenin died be like thank god it can't be any worse than lenin that guy was turned out to be quite a tyrant. Stalin guy, he's gonna be great, right? <laughs> right, and you know, I mean, and that, it's so. I mean, in some ways, like that is like. Oh no! Like the, no, no! I mean, the, it's, the, it's like the Paul of Thomas Hobbes like hangs over all of this discussion, right? Because they're like, oh, you, know, you can always get worse. There's always worse. things. Will, I mean, like I, I generally, and this is like much broader than we're talking about. My general, like, I don't know, the the two things. <laughs> That, that I start out from it fundamentally is one, everything that I do is almost certain to have made the world worse. My goal <laughs> is by <Awesome>. consciously planning <laughs> what to do to make it less worse than I could have done without my own conscious involvement. Right. No, fair enough. That is, um, well, you know, I, I don't want to end on such a downer no, note, but maybe, second, maybe, second, maybe second, the second, give me the second, because the second is less dark. The second is, all right. It is incumbent on me if I would live in comedy with others to believe as little as I can stand. And I think that actually is a really hopeful note. And it's why I'm interested in constraints. I'm not interested in constraints because it's about like laying down. How must things be? How does it all have to be? What is all the impossibility? No, 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 no. Right. What's the least that I can stand to believe? 
That's a really beautiful way to put it. And I think in some ways that speaks so much to our time and, and the kind of, I mean, this is like, there's that old kind of line, you know, creating more heat than light. I mean, this is the era of fucking just all heat, no light. Like our, our, we're just living in an age of just fucking total heat. Especially and there's just so little light. Put the sulfur in the atmosphere. <laughs> right. Seriously. <laughs> I've just never seen snow. I mean, and it's just fucking cycle after cycle of heat and no light. I mean, just to draw like I, I and I don't I'm not really into kind of entertainment news, but this obviously spilled over into the quote unquote normie kind of regular news, Um, you know. All the fucking shit over. God knows. I mean, Will Sliss slapped a guy. I mean, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I have no opinion. Like, is I mean, that's the weird thing is like, and I kind of, it, it's a, maybe a weird take on what you said, but it's like, it, it does, I think, speak not only to bigger kind of uh, grander visions for human kind of flourishing, which I think it does, but it also speaks very eloquently about now. Like, isn't it okay just not to, not to have an opinion about something? When did that? When when did we we somehow cross a, a critical threshold where like it was it, it it was no longer okay to be like oh I don't know that's weird I, I don't really think anything about it and that's honestly how I feel about like the Chris Rock Will Smith thing as a metaphor it's like I have no opinion <laughs> and none like literally none like what as my take on it not that anyone wants it yeah. nothing yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, 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 you know, it's a bit strange. I guess a bit out of the normal. Okay, fair enough. That's it. I have no, no, no take. No so thing. No. I, I have. I, I lo- a. I love what you're saying, and B. Um, unfortunately, my friend and yours, giant dickhead Aristotle, um, <laughs> in, in the in the rhetoric, uh, usefully distinguishes between three broad forms of public speech. So that's mm. deliberative, judicial, and epideictic. Uh, deliberative is, of course, you know, sort of future-oriented speech about what the polis should do. It's We're trying to persuade each other about what to do. And today, we think, we rhetoricians, we think about that everything from small stuff like where do you go out for pizza uh, to uh, um, the things that we pretend are deliberative but are absolutely not deliberative. What should Nancy Pelosi do? I'll tell you what. She doesn't give a fuck what I think. Um, right. Well, can uh, I give you my snobby East Coast answer really quickly to that? Yeah. Um, if you're in Arizona, you don't go anywhere because it's certainly all the pizza sucks. But go on. <laughs> you know what? Believe it or not. Believe it or not. Come out and visit sometime. I'm from the East okay? I'm, I'm okay. I'll stay in New York. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not from the city. But but I right. can had pizza, um, right? And, no, like, fair and, enough. And there is a pizza place in Flagstaff called New Jersey Pizza Company, and it's fair fucking enough. Awesome. It, well, it, I mean, there's been enough internal churning now that maybe some of these, like, you get these little. Because I actually worked at a Philly cheesesteak spot for a Jersey guy up in up in Humboldt County in Northern California. I was, See, I was there a cook you there. Go. That shouldn't even be possible. Yeah. So there's been there's been some seeding of proper sandwich and pizza making <laughs> in the world. But but so but so <laughs> where we should go is New Jersey Pizza Company. So deliberative, right? And then judicial. And judicial rhetoric is is, you know, all the rhetoric of the law courts, which in the ancient Greek world in Athens at least uh, was all accomplished by uh, in, individual persons, not by lawyers, and and then epideictic, which is um, the rhetoric of praise and blame, and a lot of the the tradition of studying ancient 
epideictic studies primarily the rhetoric of praise, so panegyrics and encomia. Um, but of course, it's it's very much also the rhetoric of blame. It's it, but not but not blame like let's ostracize Pericles, not that kind of blame, but rather blame that is fundamentally about collective assertion of the norms of a community. What ought we to value? And I think one of the things that's really difficult about how we live, in, especially in our hypermediated lives today, is most of what we think of as political discourse is almost all epideictic. The reality is living in oligarchies with democratic characteristics, very few of us have any, any interaction with anybody who has any interaction with the levers of power ever in any way, shape or form. <laughs> and so what we do have is we have the ability to produce uh, uh, this kind of never-ending discourse of praise and blame, and we do so uh, um, very energetically. Um, and I think like there's some things that are not bad. That's not all. Well, that's not all bad. Yeah, just you know, hanging out at a bar, hanging out at a restaurant or a coffee shop, and like bitching about or complaining about the politics of the day with your friends, and and you know, to me, that's ultimately more cathartic and more empowering and more enjoyable, just in a, in a pure aesthetic sense, than like hopping on like Twitter and like you know, throwing a bunch of hashtags at shit, you know. So I don't want to like I don't want to be like romantic like it used to be better, no, but um, it used know. to be better. I mean, I, I mean, I just think I, I just think there's a like the 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 you know that I'm not I'm I just think that there's it, it, there's something even if it's still ultimately futile. Like, okay, you, you meet up with your friends at a coffee shop and you complain about something, or you talk about some some politician you don't like or something. Like, I, I would agree that functionally there, there's probably very little that's going to come out of that in terms of effectuating any sort of genuine change. But I feel that even in that moment, there's a a, a certain kind of benefit or human kind of accrual of some sort of like um joy and 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 shared experience and and debate and and something that is perhaps lost if you're you know just fighting the next twitter war i and, and <laughs> I, I don't want to sound like okay i'm 44 i'm like you know i'm like you know now i'm the, the is, is the gen is gen x are we the new boomers is it like okay gen xer okay xer is this like an okay xer moment but so okay xer i mean now we're yeah like you know but i don't want to sound like a, a, a you know but nonetheless i i don't i do see those as as not equal um and i don't mean that the person on twitter is bad or in, engaging any sort of bad faith or you know un, unsavory activity but i just feel like it it and in some ways that's you know, and and I don't want to open up this whole can of worms, but that's everyone who you know covered Trump and went to his rallies. It was like people were reveling in part of it was reveling, and it was reveling in 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 a lot of toxic shit. But one thing they were reveling in was in the community, you know, in in a sense of commune. And and again, that was commune for very toxic and pernicious stuff, um, but commune nonetheless. That you know that that there is something that people get from that that can't be replicated in kind of more so isolated this is i mean you're right because this that this gets into a can of worms now i'm i'm on the one hand uh um unambiguously all of my most politically meaningful experiences have been in 
uh, face-to-face in-person organizing and activism. Uh, I'm, I'm a union organizer. Uh, you know, I, I've been very active at different moments and various movements and it is meaningful at the level of both friendship and politics is, is real. I think that that's true. I I'm dubious about the, it was better previously piece. I think that it's just more complex. There's just more layers. There's just more dimensions, uh, 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 possible points of connection and political friendship and, and solidarity and that they act in more different ways. That also means there's more ways to do it sort of worthlessly, <laughs> but, but it also means there's more ways to do it not worthlessly. And I think like, and, and I don't, I wouldn't feel comfortable trying to say that that's, everything always gets worse. I feel very comfortable about that, <laughs> but, but, but also, but also within the scope of that, even if I will always have acted in ways that made things worse, it's also possible and real that newness entered the, the world in ways that one ought to be able to say, this is good. And I think that I don't want to lose that. And so the danger from my perspective of thinking of it as it was like X and now it's like Y is that tends to lose the ways in which, well, it was more like it was like X and now it's like bracket X plus one and bracket squared. <laughs> and, you know, and it's, No, I think you're and you're absolutely right. And and it goes back to what you were saying about um, uh, revolutionary thinkers or, or, you know, some of the greatest thinkers often are able to look at the material as existing and and imagine new possibilities. And so I think that is it ties into that. So on that note, um, I'm going to, you know, we have to wrap this up, but I think it's clear that we'll have to have you back on. I mean, we could just do a whole episode on trying to think still and process what the kind of whole Trump arc means. And I think there's a lot that we kind of, I said, I just um, opened it up at the end, but that might be something we could talk about in the future. So hopefully I can uh, cajole you to, to come back on. But um, Ira Allen, thank you so much. Are you kidding? I love talking with you, Kevin. This is great. Thanks so much. Yeah. And I think there's a, a lot of untilled, untilled soil out there that um, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to get to in the future. So thanks so much and uh, have a good evening. Thank you.